Well, these past three Sundays, if you've been with us during Advent, I will confess we started Advent a week late, actually. But for the past three Sundays, as we've observed Advent together as a church, you have borne patiently, patiently with me, I think, as I took you to some very non-traditional scripture texts for Christmas, texts that you might not typically assume that you would go to during the Advent season, Genesis and Deuteronomy and the Psalms, and I appreciate your patience with me. This morning, I take you to one of the most traditional of all scripture texts for Christmas, in fact, so traditional that even Charlie Brown himself learned Christmas from Luke chapter 2, and so... This is what we have, beginning in verse 8. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw him, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of our God, and they will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would join with us, that you would grant to us your spirit this morning as we gather on this Christmas morning, that you would enable us again to see your good news, Lord, and to believe the gospel that you've given to us in Jesus, your word, the Son of God, and to be new this morning yet again because of it, and we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the stage set is obviously beginning to change up here in this theater. We never quite know exactly what we're going to have month to month as far as a setting in which to have our worship service. And the Charlie Brown Christmas special that's been here for these past five or six weeks for us is now giving way to the annual pre-New Year's Day circus that the theater has here on the stage, if you can imagine that. I hope this morning isn't such a circus, although it might be for you young ones out there, I suppose. But the Charlie Brown Christmas special is gone, and, and I have to say that in, in my family's almost 10 years of coming to worship services here in this theater, this stage set I think has been one of my very favorite ones, because what preacher ever really gets to preach on an ice rink? You know, they would, they would skate around as, as though ice skating around this rink, even down the aisle back there. I imagine some of you got to see the show. We came to see it. Our family did last Sunday. My family agreed to come along with me Sunday afternoon and come and see the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I hope that some of you all got to see it as well. It was an excellent production. And they tried very hard to stick to the script of that 
50-year-old animated cartoon special that all of you probably grew up watching on television. And I was curious as the play unfolded to see one important detail that takes place in the midst of that Charlie Brown Christmas special. I was curious to see if it would happen here on this stage. It's a, a detail that comes in the cartoon very subtly and yet very powerfully if you pay attention to it. Charlie Brown has just disappointed his friends, the cast of the Christmas play, with his admittedly very poor choice of a Christmas tree, right? They're very upset with him. They're frustrated with Charlie Brown. And so Linus, Charlie's beloved blanket-clinging friend, takes the matter into his hands to encourage his friend, and he redirects Charlie Brown's attention to what Linus calls the true meaning of Christmas. And Charlie Brown doesn't know what that is. What is the true meaning of Christmas? And so Linus steps out onto the stage and calls for the lights, and he begins to quote from Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, he says. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Linus was a King James guy. And he quoted from the King James to give the, the real meaning of Christmas to his friend Charlie Brown and to all the Christmas play cast. And he did it really well because he gets to this point and then the angel speaks, of course. And what does the angel say? Well, Linus quotes it out loud. Fear not. And at that moment in the cartoon, Linus drops his security blanket to the floor. It's such a subtle little detail in the cartoon. You might not notice it, but Linus drops his security blanket. The cover of all of his fears, he drops it to the floor in the midst of his quotation because he has now no more need for fear. The angel has just told him, fear not. And so he drops his fear. Well, I was glad to see that the theater cast was true to the detail. And right here on this stage, fear fell to the floor as the angel pronounced the arrival of God, the Word in the flesh. Now, it's a gospel reality. It it seems maybe to us all too distant sometimes on Christmas morning and during all the pleasantries of Advent season. Fear. Even though that's exactly what was felt by any who were confronted by God's words, ever since that day in the garden. But the word of God has continued to come to his people since the very beginning because it was always, always his plan. And God said, let there be. And there was. And the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, heard his word in the garden. Noah heard the word of the Lord as it came to him. Abram heard the word of the Lord as it came to him. The sons of Israel unwittingly responded to the word of the Lord as it came to them in their journeys to Egypt. And Moses himself, of course, heard the word of the Lord as it came to him in the burning bush. And then he brought God's words to God's people in Egypt, and he drew them out of Egypt into freedom, and he brought God's words. He told them what God was like. He told them what God had promised to them. He told them what God required of them. He told them 
how to live before God in the land that he would surely give to them. But Moses was not to go into that land, and so came another promise we saw. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Listen to him, Moses said. Listen to him. And for centuries then, the Jews anticipated the coming of the prophet. Who would it be? Would it be Joshua, Moses' successor? No, it wasn't Joshua. He admitted himself. Would it be Samuel? No, not Samuel. Maybe Elijah, surely Elijah. No, it wasn't Elijah. And then when would the prophet come with God's word? Well, the poets, of course, reflected on it. O Lord, remember your word to your servant in which you have made us hope. We saw that priestly writer of the long acrostic psalm 119 who established the rhythm of his long poetry with the synonyms for God's word. When we think of your rules from of old, O Lord, we take comfort, he wrote. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And not only do I love those, but I love your precepts and your promises and your statutes. I love your word, O Lord, as it has been coming to us, because the words of God for the people of God were coming for the glory of God. And then when that glory arrived, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and they were filled with great fear, Luke tells us. What is the true meaning of Christmas? What is it? It is that the Word of God came in the flesh in order to meet us where we are and to restore us to what we're supposed to be. It's really a fascinating and remarkable thing that this announcement came to these shepherds out in the field. Who were the shepherds? At risk of maybe belaboring some of the obvious for a moment, let me describe to you some about who these shepherds were. They were, of course, the keepers of livestock in their day, as they would be even today. They were the keepers of livestock. They would probably have goats and cattle out in the fields. They surely would have sheep, because someone had to keep the sheep in the vicinity of Jerusalem for all the temple rituals there in the city of David. And Bethlehem, where we are in this scene, is close to Jerusalem. It's just five or six miles south of Jerusalem. It's in the vicinity. It's nearby. And here these shepherds were out in the fields near Bethlehem. And these characters in this day and age had a peasant status about them. They were very unimportant characters, and yet they carried an important job that no one else wanted. They were nomads who wandered about. They literally lived in the wilderness. It's not like they were doing their shift from 9 to 5 or from 11 p.m., to 7 a.m. out in the fields, and then they were going to go home and get a good night of rest in their bed. No, that's not what they did. They, they lived in the wilderness. Maybe they slept in a tent of some kind for a few hours, but they lived in the wilderness with their flocks. And they were not too concerned about property lines. They would wander about onto whoever's property they might come to. And that's just what they did. They had a very particular set of skills as they developed them over the course of time for fending off and fighting off predators that would come to their flock looking for dinner. These were tough and brave and even 
filthy and smelly characters. Now, in a moment, we're going to sing together one of my favorite Christmas songs from the squalor of a borrowed stable. From the squalor of a borrowed stable came the Son of God to save mankind. Now, squalor is, of course, filthy and dirty and disgusting, whatever it is. And these shepherds would have been right at home in the squalor of the stable, for sure. And we might want to take these shepherds' squalor and and create some kind of a metaphor for our own spiritual squalor. And we could do that. There's some truth to that. But I'm not so sure that that's really the point of Luke's writing this to us. I think it's more this. These are ordinary people doing an ordinary thing in an ordinary place. They are not special. They are not important. And they're certainly not famous. They are ordinary people. And this news is for them. You know, in our culture's construction of the Christmas season, we do everything that is not ordinary, don't we? That's just kind of how our our culture has constructed the Christmas season. I mean, it is the end of the calendar year, I give it that, and that comes with its own particular set of, of events, financial and celebration and even reflection. You know, we're, we're prone to reflect more deeply at the end of the year, at least, you know, looking back on the year, wishing what might have been and what we hope will be in the next year, and we have another chance. And so we reflect on things maybe more deeply. But at the same time, the Christmas season, as it's constructed for us in our culture, brings about a certain nostalgic sort of idealism. And that's why one of the, the really popular and one of my favorite Christmas movies that comes out and gets recycled on cable television every year is A Christmas Story. That 1983 epic, love it or hate it, story of Ralphie and his quest for what? The ideal and perfect Christmas gift for a boy in the 1940s. A Red Ryder BB gun. And who doesn't want to be Ralphie at that moment? He opens the package and there it is. It's exactly what he wanted. It's nostalgic to us because we want to recapture the idealism of a bygone era. But that's not where we are. That's not the ordinariness of where we are. You know, on January 12, why January 12? Just because it's another day. You'll just be probably, I suspect, an ordinary person doing some ordinary thing in an ordinary place. And here's the point. The Word of God has come, and it is for you in all of your unspectacular ordinariness. It's also for you in your weakness, because He came in weakness. And in what may be maybe the most astonishing display of confidence in the sovereign power of His Word... God sent his son as a baby. And we reflect on this, you know, every year at Christmas time. It, it, it's a remarkable thing that we maybe take for granted. But you, you got to see this message from, from the angel. He, he tells these shepherds that you're going to, to find a savior, a, a lord, a king who is born to you. And the sign of that is that you'll, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger trying to keep warm, with his mother and father there with him, just in all of his weakness and ordinariness, because from the beginning of history, God's word has been coming through the power of creation, 
through the thunder of judgment and even through the hope of promise and the poetry of the prophets. And now here is that very word in the flesh. Come to meet you exactly where you are. Why? Why a baby? I think in part it's because it's disarming. It's completely disarming for us because the Lord knows he could have come in power. One day he will. He could have come in glory and one day he will, but but he knows the rebellion of our hearts. He knows that if he had come in such a way, we would not have been inclined to receive him, but to run from him. And so that we would receive him, he came in weakness to meet us exactly where we are and to restore us to what we're supposed to be. What is that? What are we supposed to be? Beloved sons and daughters of God the Father. You know that that Christmas is known for its decoration and for its celebration, but that's all, and that's right and good, but that's all just because Christmas's purpose is actually reclamation. It's reclamation because the God of the universe has sent his heavenly forces to reclaim what belongs to him. And this angelic announcement that comes to the shepherds in the field makes his intentions very clear. And we sometimes miss it, maybe because some of our cultural baggage around it. The angel's announcement that comes here is actually a declaration of war, or at least a reconstitution and a redefining of a war that's been going on for ages at this point. Christmas cards that come to us can be sort of deceptive to us because they show oftentimes this kind of soft-skinned angel floating over the shepherds as though he or she were delivering some sort of peaceful, pleasant announcement. But it's really not that. It's really not that at all. This angel gave to these shepherds, remember, great fear. These shepherds wouldn't have been afraid of much. They were tough guys. Out, I mean, they were John Wayne out in the wilderness, out in the fields at night where they lived as nomads. They fought off wild animals all the time. They would not have been afraid of much. But this angel comes, and they have such great fear because the glory of the Lord shone around them. And you have to think back, and I don't know that these shepherds would have had the, the background and knowledge to do this, but as we read it, we do, to think back on some scenes of the Old Testament. Moses, having been up on the mountain before God, and he returns to the people, and his, his physical countenance is altogether changed, and the people can see it because the glory of the Lord is shown off of Moses. And what do they request of him? Moses, please, we can't even look on it. Cover yourself and just speak. We can't look upon you. It's too much. They felt the same fear that these shepherds surely felt. And I think there's also an element here of what Joshua, Moses's successor, experienced before they go into the promised land. Maybe you remember this story. Joshua is scouting out before they go into the promised land, and he comes across a sword-gilded warrior. And Joshua sees this warrior ready for battle, and he asks the warrior, are you for us or are you for our enemy? And do you know what the, the warrior says? No. It wasn't a, no, a yes or no question that he asked, but, but the, the warrior says, no, neither. Both of those are wrong. I'm not for you and I'm not for them. I am the angel of the Lord, and this battle belongs to me. 
there's some element of that, of what these shepherds are seeing here, because the announcement that comes to them is, in the Greek, a little more, more choppy than the softer English that we, that we give to it. Born to you today is a Savior who is Christ Lord in the city of David. That's what the, the angel says to them. He, he says to them that born to you is a Savior, a Lord, and in the city of David, meaning this is a king. This is a Savior, a Lord, and a king. And, and we don't know, we can't be sure about what these shepherds knew about Jewish religion. But we can be sure that they would have known Caesar Augustus. Because anybody at this time, in this day and age, and in that place would have been quite well aware of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. In fact, Luke had mentioned him just a few verses before at the beginning of chapter 2. It was Caesar Augustus whose census had called Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And the Roman emperor, the Caesar, Augustus, was known by some titles. Savior, Lord, King. It was even said of his birthday in later years that on his birthday it was celebrated around the empire as a day of good news. These shepherds would have heard these things and surely taken the hint. They knew what was being told to them. They they had to know And then armies even would have backed up Caesar Augustus. They would have well known. So the hint is being dropped. And then what else appears? An army to back it up. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now again, our Christmas cards can be a little bit deceptive for us. And cast kind of the the wrong picture for us. Maybe in all the pleasantries of an angelic choir floating above the the shepherds' encampment singing pleasant songs to them, but that's not exactly what they've seen here. What is it? A multitude of the heavenly host. That's the key word here. The Greek word is, is translated to English with two synonyms, host or army. That's what this is. They see a, a heavenly army praising God vast all around them as far as they apparently can see what they're seeing here. It's much safer to assume rather than an angelic choir is a vast army of helmeted, sword-girded warriors stretching out to the horizon as far as they can see, lifting their voices to fill the sky. Glory to God in the highest. God is sending a message, and it is very clear. I am here to restore and recover what belongs to me, and I have what is required to get that done. Liam Neeson is one of those Hollywood actors who is a manly man of all men. He's the the guy that kind of gravitates towards and is a natural for the the man role of revenge and violence. And some years ago, he was the lead role in a movie called Taken. Some of you may have seen it. He plays there an ex-CIA operative, a tough guy, who has a very beloved teenage daughter who, while traveling in Europe, is taken captive by human traffickers. And he knows it because he's on the phone with her when they come to take her captive. And he gives her some instructions even over the phone. And then when he has a chance to speak on the phone to her captives, he delivers the line that is the catch line of the movie. If you're looking for ransom, I don't have money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills 
skills I've acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Every dad loves that line. But no dad dares deliver that line because it's the kind of bravado that only Hollywood can fabricate and that only God can make real. Jesus, even himself to his disciples, explains, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to declare war against Satan and his rebellion and all the effects of the fall that come with it. I've come to reclaim all of creation, including its crown, the image bearers of God, his beloved sons and daughters, and its end is so certain that these war-ready angels declare it from the very beginning. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left, the shepherds did the only reasonable thing that shepherds in their situation could possibly do. They go to Bethlehem, they find the city of David, and they find the sign that was told to them, the child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And they left their flocks out in the field to do it. And after seeing Mary and Joseph and the baby lying there and telling of the message they had received, they then, Luke tells us, returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I would add a bit to that last clause as it had been told to all of God's people for thousands of years and still is told today. Now, I know, as, as we come to a close here, I know that the idea of the incarnation to many of you here, being in church on Sunday morning, probably the idea of the incarnation, the, the coming of God in the flesh, is to you, in a sense, sort of a ho-hum kind of routine. It's what we celebrate every year, and oh yeah, we know God came in the flesh. Not that you don't believe it, or certainly even disrespect it, but it's just sort of a, a routine to you. But consider this. Kirsten Powers is a, a well-known television figure on political news channels, CNN and Fox News and others, an interesting character who speaks to political matters on television. She became a Christian a few years ago through the ministry of a Presbyterian church in New York City there and through some friends and acquaintances there. And a year or so ago, she wrote an article for Christianity Today, and the title of the article was, Becoming a Christian Ruined Christmas for Me. And she explained in the article about how she grew up as sort of a nominal, occasional churchgoer celebrating Christmas in the American way as all Americans and people around the world, for that matter, often do, and receiving gifts and all the good things that come with it. And that she said that when she became a Christian, the gospel ruined all that for her because she began to recognize the materialism that, that prevails and runs and rules the day so easily. It was all that she had loved about Christmas, and now that was ruined. She said, she realized that when a sail at Crate and Barrel gets entangled with the birth of Jesus Christ, something has gone horribly wrong. 
But then she said, on further reflection, as she grew in the gospel and began to see more broadly and deeply into the mysteries of what God has given us in Jesus, she began to see the, as Linus would say, the true meaning of Christmas, that it's actually a divine mission to rescue humankind. It is God coming to be God with us and for us, to rescue us. It is God declaring war on all that's wrong in this world to reclaim and restore all that belongs to Him. And so the question for you and me is, in a sense, has the coming of the Word of God ruined Christmas for you? In some sense, it should completely ruin and redefine what Christmas is altogether. Because the Son of God has come in the flesh. The words of God came to you so that you might know that the Word of God is for you on this Christmas day and on every day to come. Glory be to God in the highest. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, we give you praise and honor and thanksgiving for your good word to us. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to believe it and to trust you yet again. Father, we pray that we would be able to, by your Spirit, rejoice in the good news of your coming in the flesh, that we might believe it, remarkable as it is, and have life in your name. For these things, we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.